Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Region 2 Convention Ask It Basket Workshop. My name is Ilana, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, everybody, and I'm your moderator for this meeting. Please join me in starting the workshop with the Serenity Prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we get started, I ask that all cell phones and other electronic devices please be turned off. To protect our anonymity, no photography or visual recordings are allowed. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. An Ask It Basket is now being circulated. The Ask It Basket is for the question and answer portion of this meeting. This meeting is being tape recorded and if you enjoy the workshop, we encourage you to stop by the tape recording table afterwards to order copies of this workshop or any of the other meetings. They are available on CD or as electronic download. The format of this meeting is as follows. Two speakers will share for 25 minutes each, followed by 25 minutes of questions and answers. The topic for this session is body image, recovering from shame. Our first speaker will be Ruthie and our second speaker will be Seema. So let me welcome Ruthie. Hi, my name is Ruth, and I am a real compulsive overeater. Just to qualify, um, I came into the program for the second time in um, 1990. Uh, I'd come in the 70s, but I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for gratitude, and I wasn't ready for God, so until I got desperate, which was in 1990. Um, I didn't come back. I, uh, my home group is the Saturday morning meeting at Sutter Hospital in Sacramento, and I highly recommend it. It's a step and tradition study, and we'd love to have visitors come and see us there. I, um, my highest weight, I don't know what it is, it's over 200, but I have no idea. And since we're talking about body image, I'll talk a little bit more about like clothing and that kind of thing. Uh, when I was in my mid-twenties, my sister got married, my younger sister, so that was a blow because I was the old, quite a bit older sister, and here my younger sister was getting married, and I had no boyfriend. And um, my sister decided to have a small wedding, and the reason she decided to have a small wedding was because she didn't want me in it, and she made that very clear because I'd make the, the wedding ugly. But I did need a dress, so... Um, I went to look for dresses. Now, mind you, this was a very dressy spring wedding, and um, the only place that sold dresses that would fit someone my size, I was a, an obese young woman in those days, was Wayne Bryant, and they were all black polyester bags, which really wasn't quite right for a wedding. So um, we decided we'd have a dress made for me, and I picked out a bright yellow pattern. I'm going to pass it. One side of these pictures is before, and I'll talk a little bit about that, and the other side is during, and, and finally a few after. 
Anyway, I pick out this, this pattern, and I go to have a, um, this pattern dress, and I go to have a, a dress made that would be appropriate for a wedding. And somehow the problem with this dress was that every time I went to either have the pattern checked or the dress checked, you know, first they baste it before they sew it and they fit it. Every time I went, it wasn't, it didn't get on me anymore. And of course that wasn't the problem of the, um, of me. That was the problem of the person making the dress. And the problem was that I ate and ate and ate and I didn't stop eating and I only started, you know, all I did was grow. But I really didn't have a connection between what went in my mouth and, and what went on my body. Fast forward, um, last weekend, I guess it was, Memorial Day weekend, there's good sales. And I've decided, since I'm closer to 70 than to 60, that I need to buy age-appropriate clothes. And that I should start reading People magazine and, and looking at Angelina Jolie and deciding that's how I should do it. So I went to an age-appropriate mature woman's store and um, went to the rack and um, I mean first it's it's an incredible blessing to just go to a store not Lane Bryant not Macy's women and I'm not putting that down because I had a shop there for a long time but to go to a real store and go to the sales rack and first I took now I'm petite I didn't used to be petite but I became petite um, and so I went to the petite rack and I picked out the 12 petites and I took all these clothes, mostly black, into the dressing room and um, th they were too big. So I had to get, the sales lady was very nice and so she went out and got me all the same things in tens, which were fun. And then I thought, the, it echoed in my head, the, the words of two of the women who are in this room who always tell me, don't keep buying black, don't keep buying black. I have white pants on. White pants on. <laughs> I have a bright colored top on. I almost wore black. Yes, I had all black on. A little print blouse, but, but all black. Um, when I was little, and so that's kind of before and after as far as body and when I was little, I was perfect. I was absolutely perfect. And I have spent a lot of time looking back, and it's mostly through fourth step work, figuring out, you know, like what happened? How did I go from being perfectly fine? And you'll see some pictures of me um, when I was very little riding a scooter. And I just loved life. I was active and happy. I mean, there was nothing wrong with me. There was nothing wrong with the world. And the first sort of notion I had that something might be wrong with me based on the casing was in fifth grade. And I went to, we moved from a city to a very, very affluent sub, uh, suburb where I knew nobody. And it's hard, it's hard to start school in fifth grade in a totally new school. And, and my family's custom was to get a new dress or a new outfit for the first day of school. The first day of school was a big deal. And I still remember the dress because I loved it when I got it. And it was cute and it was, it was red and it was white and it was checked. It was kind of a pinafore and had a little matching purse. And I just thought it was the cutest thing in the whole world. And I went to this school and this school would grow up to be, as I grew up in it, the essence of the movie Mean Girls. It was a very wealthy, very um, snotty 
um, suburb on the East Coast, and everybody wore Brooks Brothers clothes. I mean, this is fifth grade. People are wearing Oxford button-downs and, you know, designer skirts. And, and people looked at me, and I didn't look the same, and they started to make fun of me. And for the first time in my life, I was not okay. I was an outcast solely based on, on the external. And I didn't even know how damaging an experience that was until, I mean, I remember it. I remember, and you can see, I mean, I'm, you know, it's a lot of years ago now. Um, I remembered it so intensely when I did my fourth step. And I, and I started to think about other instances along the way where I became increasingly not okay. And from that moment forward, I always felt less than. I hadn't felt less than before then, but that year, that fifth grade experience was a, a less than experience. Fast forward to when I'm a junior in high school, and I go away. I was selected. I should have felt good. I was selected as one of um, 25 kids in the country who were supposed to be math, um, math good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this this was right after Sputnik, or you know, four years after Sputnik, and the, the National Science Foundation and NASA and all those kinds of organizations were trying to identify young people who might work in the space program. So they ran around to high schools and got kids that they thought were were good in math, and we all were we all went to college. That we were uh, juniors in high school. We all went to college to a special program um, in math, and when I got there. I mean, I was in over my head. Talk about feeling less than. I mean, I was smart, but these kids were geniuses. And um, what I remember about it is actually being interested in the math, but also my first experience was vending machines. Now, I didn't grow up under a rock, and I went to amusement parks and all those kinds of places, but I don't think I'd ever, outside of the automats in New York City, I don't think I'd ever seen something where you put change in it and candy and stuff like that came out. And I don't remember the eating part. I remember the trying to get change every day and having enough change. And when I came home, and my parents were not exactly um, image builder people, as you'll see from this um, little vignette. In those days, there were no jetways. So I'd go back to the East Coast. I walked down the steps of the plane, and my parents were, you know, at the bottom of the steps. And one of them, and I don't remember which one, said, what happened to you? And what had happened to me is I had gained something like 30 or 40 or who knows how many pounds um, stuffing my mouth with whatever I could get my hands on because I was a compulsive overeater. And the only medicine I knew was food. And I was so anxious there and so feeling less than and so feeling in over my head that the only coping mechanism I had was to eat. And that was the pattern for years and years and years. I lost that weight. I was a swimmer. I was a champion swimmer. Um, when I got back to um, where I lived, I was working as a lifeguard. There's a lifeguard picture there. Um, but I didn't feel okay because, you know, my mom or my dad or both had said, you know, what happened to you? And immediately I was taken to my uncle, who was a physician, and put on a diet. So I was on a diet and... Um, I was I was swimming these. We had a minimum swim of five miles a day. So if you're swimming five miles a day and you're out in the sun all day and you're swimming in addition to that because it's hot, 
you know, you do slim down. So I lost weight for my senior year in the high school, and then I went away for college. And from college, for the next several years till the wedding and a few while after that, it was just bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. What what I think I experienced then was though not, you know, I can't say I had body in it. I had, um, I just felt awful. I hated my life. I was depressed. Um, I was suicidal some of the time. Um, I was successful in that, um, you know, I went, to, I got good academic credentials and I, and I had good jobs and all kinds of things like that. And then I discovered dieting. And I became a very, very good dieter. I could diet off somewhere between 50 and 80 pounds and then gain it. And my pattern for many years was diet from January to October. I always took vacation in October, start eating in October, go on vacation, Halloween, um, Thanksgiving, my birthday, Christmas, New Year's, you know, a whole bunch of stuff, gain a ton of weight and go back on a diet. And I was never the same size. And um, I knew I was big. I don't know that I knew how big I was when I was big. And I had some sense that I was small because of the number on the scale, but not because I felt any better. I mean, I was stark raving mad. I would starve for, you know, six or seven months. And the minute I was done with the diet, you know, I would start the other direction. So I never even experienced staying the same way. Not exactly the healthiest thing in the world. So what happened was one day in 19, well, in the 70s, I realized this might be a problem. I came to um, OA in Modesto, California. By then, I had moved to California. And what I remember is smiling, gratitude, and God. And that was just anathema to me, anathema. I was a mathematician. By then, I was a psychologist, but I had been a mathematician. And... Um, I didn't believe in that stuff. Just did not believe in that stuff. Just put your mind to it and everything will be okay. So I left and I continued to diet until there was no diet in me. One day in 1990, I was standing in a room and I had my fingers like this. It was after an event at work and the sheet cake had been brought into a break room. It was a huge sheet cake and, you know, there's frosting left along the edges and I was going like this. And I thought, you know, I'm an addict. I'm a sugar addict. And I came back to OA. And the way I, what I want to say about body image is this. Number one, this is just my, all of this is just my opinion. Number two is that my body image is totally distorted. I have no clue what my body really looks like and there are a couple of stories will illustrate that in a minute but most importantly I learned through working the steps that I am not my body and I got rid of the shame not because it had anything to do with this vessel which contains a wonderful human being I got rid of the shame by working the steps and learning that in many ways my body and therefore my image of my body, which is just a perception, which I know is warped, 
My body and that image of it is an outside issue. That's not who I am. That's my perception in many ways of what other people think about me, which is really none of my business. And now I know, I have a sense of who I am because it's in here and it's not here or here. I don't know if that makes any sense. And if I work the steps solely on the issue of my body, that's useful. But I think if I work the steps on who I am, that's, that's where the healing comes. And the first time I worked a fourth step, I did it chronologically. I've done many fourth steps. Um, the, I've done the Big Book Way. I've done the OA workbook, the OA um, questions, questions from other programs. It really doesn't make any matter, but difference as long as you do it. But the, the first time I did it was chronologically kind of based on the seven deadly sins. I mean, roughly. I mean, I hate to put it that way, but that's what it was. And it, it tended to be, I have 10 more minutes. It tended to be confessional, or I viewed it before I started it as confession. I was going to tell the world about bad Ruth, this awful person. And what I came to learn about the fourth step is that it really is, it's a description. It's a way of understanding. It was the first time that I could see myself as an integrated person. I could see that three-year-old and that fifth grader and that junior in high school and that college kid and that young married and the career woman and see that whole string as a whole and see how some of the things that I didn't know I had, like fear. When I came to this program, if someone had told me I was a fearful person, I would have taken their head off because I was angry. But I guarantee you I was not fearful until I found out that I am a 100% fear-based person. And as the AA step book tells me, you know, it's fear of losing something I have or not getting something I demand. And if I can look at my life in those terms, I can begin to find out those qualities within me, most recently judgment, opinions and self-pity. That's been the, the work of the last several months. Those elements within me, which then through the sixth and seventh step, I can ask God to help me and to relieve me if I'm entirely ready. And that entirely ready part is a little tricky because sometimes I want to be entirely ready of the ramifications, but I kind of like the behavior. And that's kind of like I want to be skinny, but I want to eat. So, um, you know, sometimes I have to get clear with God about how really ready I am. I also have to remember that it's a God thing. God gave me this body. This is a God-given body for a period of time. And all of the things that were anathema to me that I have come to embrace, I'm not religious at all, but I am a spiritually based person. And I say that in all sincerity because I am. And I can't believe I got that way. 
I mean, how does someone who can't even stand the word turn into a God-based person? But that's where the healing is. This body image thing has nothing really to do with flesh or with food or even with weight. It has to do with having a spiritual center and being able to, at least for me, being able to honestly know exactly who I am. And the body image part is still broken. About five years ago, I was at a 12-step retreat. There were about 70 women. It was an all-day, it was really a day, a long event, not a real retreat. And part of it was to walk a labyrinth that was outside. And anybody who's been on the labyrinth knows that, you know, you pass, there's lots of people and you pass. And as other people were coming at me, I'd turn this way, sideways, so that there'd be enough room for the other person. And then I must have gotten so deep into thinking about the labyrinth, I forgot to do that. And then I just passed someone walking normally. And the minute I realized that, I burst into tears because I had no clue that I fit into a space that a normal person would fit into. You know, I just have still a very distorted, I have no idea what size I am. Last night I came in, we came to register, I headed for the boutique, I ran into a woman whom I adore who lives, I used to live in two places and she lived in the other place. So I, I saw her and she was looking through racks and I decided to only look at bright things so I pulled out this red jacket, and I looked at it. It was really pretty, and I said, oh, but it's much too small for me. And she looked at me, and I thought, she didn't say a thing. She just looked at me. And so I looked at it, and I looked at the size, and it was a 1X. Now, I wear medium, and, you know, medium is not tight on me. So, you know, I look at this thing, and I think it's too big, but that's because I don't have a clue. Okay, so I got, what, five minutes, so I'm going to wrap up because I'm getting everywhere. Anyway, I guess if, if I'm going to leave uh, two messages, it would be that the other part of the body thing is the ultimate bondage of self, I think. Just, you know, who really cares? That's not who I am. The people who adore me, the people whom I might help, the people that I want to connect with, the people in my life that matter, I don't think they care what casing I come in. They probably don't even look at it anymore. They know me so well, you know. They, you know, if I asked my husband what I was wearing that morning, he probably wouldn't know. He knows he adores me. I know he adores me. So, you know, that that's what's important. And if I'm constantly thinking about my body, then somewhere along the line I've missed out on the humility that this program um, is trying to teach me. Because that humility would tell me, again, that I'm no less than or more than or even to think in those terms, you know, that kind of thing, you know, looking at someone and I wonder if I'm fatter or skinnier or, you know, all that kind of craziness is just missing the point. I mean, if I made a decision in step three to turn my will and my life over, then to the care of God, then I made a decision to live my life on a totally different basis. And if I remember that decision, if I am living that decision, then even thinking about this body thing 
um, is is missing the point. And so I guess what I what I really would like to say is that if you're struggling with all of this body stuff, and God knows it's so charged, and let's not even get into sex and all that, people touching us and hugging and loving, but um, that's another workshop. It's so charged, but it's so irrelevant. It's so an outside issue. And the answer for everything in this program, this is a program about the steps. It's not a program about our bodies. Our bodies just hold that thing that, that we try to make sacred in the program. So I hope that um, I made some sense. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ruth, for sharing. And I'd like to introduce our second speaker today, Seema. I was hoping she would go over time. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Seema, and I'm a recovering anorexic bulimic and compulsive overeater. <laughs> I didn't expect that. <laughs> Um, I've been an Overeaters Anonymous on and off. I'm one of the retreads from, since 1978, and I came back to stay in 1993. And it, I'm glad I did because I don't know if I'd be alive today. And if I were alive without the program, I have no idea what the quality of my life would be, but it would not be good. And because of OA, um, I have a life today that I actually like most of the time. Okay, I'll tell a little bit about, well, this is primarily about body image, so I'll kind of close the notes because they're not going to help. I won't be able to see them. Um, I, I felt shame for as long as I remember. I think that my shame preceded my problems with food. Um, like Ruth, I was probably perfect as a child. I mean, I was cute, and I did things, and my parents liked me, and all of that stuff. But somehow I picked up a sense of there's something not quite right about me, something not quite right. And um, of course, kids kind of pick up things around them, and sometimes it belongs to the people around them, and they take it on as their own. And I come from a family of compulsive dieters, so guess what? There's something wrong with me. Must have been my body size. Um, but I was a normal-sized kid. Um, I was a normal-sized kid until puberty. And then I really got into the shame. It's like, oh, my God. Not only did I go into puberty, but I was one of those kids who gets really ugly in puberty because I was awkward. I started growing breasts. I didn't want them, so I wore my old blouses, and they were too small. And I perms then were not what they were today. When you took up the rollers, they went boink. And I had cat's eye glasses. <laughs> Um, and, I, and boys at school, the mean boys at school used to tell me I was ugly. So I walked around kind of hunched over like this and started looking more ugly than I felt, uh, than I should have felt, and then more, certainly more ugly than I was. Actually, looking back at old photos, I wasn't ugly. I was just awkward. <laughs> I was an awkward teenager. Um, I started getting into dieting when... Um, I graduated from high school. Um, that summer, between high school and college, a lot of people were having barbecues, go, going away barbecues for the kids, those of us who were going to college, and almost kind of gained uh, enough weight to go up to 130 pounds, which for me was heavy. I mean, it's, 
I got higher than that in my life, but for me at that time that was heavy. And Twiggy was starting to become the vogue. For those of you who are in your 60s or 70s, I mean, most of you know who Twiggy is, but for those of us in our 60s and 70s, not only do we know who Twiggy was, but like Twiggy was. She was five foot nine. she was 93 pounds, and she was really beautiful. She had these big blue eyes, and I knew that I... The skinny, I wanted the skinniness because I thought the skinniness was part of why I liked her so much. And I wasn't going to ever turn into a tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed person, being um, short and Eastern European and, and Jewish, dark-haired, dark eyes. But I, so I could get skinny, though. And so I went to college, and using a diet from Seventeen Magazine, another um, artifact from our childhood, I started on a diet. And... Two things happened. One is, um, well, first thing was I went on a diet, and the second thing was that it was the first time I'd ever been away from home. And um, the secret in my home was that we looked like a really great, friendly, wonderful family, and in fact, there was a lot of domestic violence. Um, I was sexually abused. My father was a bully and criticized us all the time and all of that, and I didn't. I didn't realize that myself, and the reason I didn't realize it was because um, kids who can't stand what's going on, adults too, but tend to just kind of make themselves forget. I got very detached from my experience of my body. I only remembered it when somebody or something forced me to, um, and whenever I remembered my body, I felt shame. Um, so back to going to college. Here I was at college, and I could look like Twiggy, and then I wouldn't feel any more shame. Um, and I started eating smaller portions of food. I knew how to diet. My whole family did it all the time. We were experts. Um, and then I started eating smaller portions of food. And then, like, the first month after I was there, I got on the scale. And, wow, I was, like, 105 pounds. Um, I was five foot four. I was way too tall to be 105 pounds with my build. My clothes kept getting bigger. That was great. Um, and by the time I went home for Thanksgiving... I was um, 87 pounds. Um, I was still five foot four. And um, when I got off the bus, um, the Greyhound bus from Buffalo uh, to Levittown, where I lived, got off the bus, and my family was waiting. And I walked off the bus, and they kept waiting for Seema to come off the bus. Um, and finally, my little sister said, Mom, I think that's Seema. And it was a catastrophic occasion. They also said, What happened to you? Um, and then tried to force me to eat and all of that. Um, and I felt very disconnected from them because I felt very disconnected by that point from everything. One of the main experiences of anorexia, it's an addiction like compulsive overeating, but, and it also has an additional physiological effect of changing your electrolytes and starva it's a starvation, basically. And people get lightheaded, they get disconnected from they're feeling their bodies. Um, I was very disconnected. And I, had, I hadn't known it at the time, but I wanted to disconnect from my family anyway, and that was the way to do it. Um, so I went back to college, and I continued to be anorexic. And um, then one day I went out to eat with some friends at an all-you-can-eat Chinese restaurant. So we all know in this room about all-you-can-eat buffets, right? I mean, don't, we don't go there if we can help it now. But they used to be heavenly. Only I was scared. 
you know, I was anorexic. I wasn't going to eat any of that stuff. And I ended up eating so much that when I got back to my dorm room, I tried to make myself throw up. I had never done that before. So I stayed in the bathroom for about a half an hour, finally threw it up. And it was this light went on. It's like, wow, wow. I found the magic pill that all of us felt we were looking for when we got here. I could eat whatever I wanted, and I could get rid of it. Um, and I did that for the next 30 years. Um, and I kind of went from binging and throwing up maybe four times a day or five times a day, and the rest of the time I would just restrict my food. And then eventually I got to the point where I couldn't restrict my food anymore. I was no longer anorexic. I was just binging all day long and throwing up all day long. Except for in between, I would take breaks to go to classes at school. I would take breaks to, um, I don't know, oh, babysit. I used to do a lot of babysitting. But I don't really remember very much about the nine years I spent in undergraduate school. And it took nine years because of this disease. Um, I don't remember very much about it except that I knew where every 24-hour toilet was in, in Buffalo, New York. Um, I knew how to throw up and making as little noise as possible. I really thought my friends didn't know. Um, they knew anyway. Um, but believe me, it wasn't a word yet then, so they really didn't know what was happening. And nobody ever told me about it. Uh, nobody ever confronted me. So I went through school binging and throwing up. Um, I also, as, a, as an adult in college, um, because I didn't have a body, an experience of a physical body, I also didn't have an experience of sex. I knew what sex was, and I mean, because I could read, and I was intelligent, and my mom had take, give, given me all the right books about menstruation and all that stuff, and the Walt Disney movie with the ice cubes coming down on the little girl taking a shower. Um, don't take a cold shower when you're having your period. Um, but I had no, I didn't, I didn't date um, very much. I wanted to date because I thought you were supposed to date. If you wanted, I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be popular. I never gave that up. I never gave up the need to connect. I just gave up the ability to connect. Um, I was too busy with my first love, which was binging and throwing up. But I did want to connect. I did even have friends. But sex was another thing. And um, because I was so ashamed of my body, even when it was skinny, like you were saying, when you got thinner, you still felt like you were big. When I was thin, it didn't matter how thin I was, I was still ashamed of my body. And I used to wear heavy wool ponchos in the summer in New York. And we all, you all who are from New York know about the humidity and the heat. Heavy wool ponchos, long, long sleeve shirts, and heavy baggy pants um, all the time, all the time, except for when I went to the school swimming pool. And, um, and actually, it's interesting. Nevertheless, people were attracted to me, and I just ignored them. I just ignored them. I didn't want to know anything about it. Um, boy, how did I get on the subject of sex? Okay, well, it, it, well I didn't have it. I didn't. It, this was the glorious 60s and 70s when that did away with the concept of premature sex as being something. I mean, premarital sex as being something. Now, then, after that period, it was just sex, and you had it before marriage or after, but before that, premarital sex was like, mm, mm And so everybody I knew was do it with having it. Um, and, of course, that's an important part of body image as well. And I was the only one I knew not having it, um, so I used to tell, pretend that I did and tell stories about it, but I had no experience, even in my own body, of sensual feelings, of any of that. Um, and I didn't want to. 
And so I was really numbed out psychologically, um, emotionally. I was really numbed out spiritually. I didn't know what spiritual meant, um, although I think I had a spiritual power looking over me, because if I didn't, I'd be, I don't know what I would be. Um, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. Um, I, and I was, to I was totally numbed out in all ways. Um, hmm. So I did a geographic. Um, I moved to California. And um, I had run into OA in Buffalo. It was pretty new then. In 1974, I don't know how old we, this program was, but it was, we were pretty young. Um, there was a meeting on campus, and I wasn't miserable because of the throwing up. I was really miserable because I couldn't stop binging, um, and because I kept thinking how fat I was and how awful I felt. And I wasn't fat, but I was clearly distorted in my mind. But I was totally miserable. Um, so I went to the first OA meeting, and um, everybody was a lot bigger than I was, and they didn't know why I was there, and they asked me why I wasn't there, why I was there. And then they, you know, they greeted me. They were very friendly, but they were really puzzled. They gave me gray sheet, um, or blue sheet, which, gray sheet, gray sheet was first. And they said, this will work, you know, come back. And I went home, and I was really excited. Oh, boy, a special diet. Not just a diet, but a special diet to keep me from binging. And it, was just, it turned out to be, without the program itself, it turned out to be just like any other diet um, I'd ever tried, as I was on it through breakfast. <laughs> and then I went off, <laughs> and I didn't go back to the meeting. And that was when I decided, around that time, I decided I was going to have to leave Buffalo and go somewhere else. Because, of course, when I left Buffalo, I would leave myself behind. I'd start all over. And if I just had the chance to start all over, I would be fine. Um, and I was fine on the five days it took me to drive out here from Buffalo. I ate carrots and raisins and had meals, sort of. Um, was driving out with a friend who was not one of us. and But she ate very sparingly, so that was helpful. And then I moved out here, and I was off and running within about a week. And, of course, very dis deeply disappointed. So just dis despairing about it, I couldn't even let myself know how despairing I felt. Um, and all of this time, I was maintaining a kind of normal weight, so nobody knew anything was wrong. Uh, that's one of the difficulties of bulimia, is that we can sort of look normal, but we're so not normal. And everybody in this room know what, knows what it feels like not to be normal, whether we're morbidly obese or whether we're throwing up 20 times a day, which I was doing. Um, in 1978, this is my very favorite story and some of you have heard it, um, I walked into a cafe in my neighborhood, new owners, they just, they were the owners for about a week. I walked in, got my latte, sat down. I had really short, short hair then and a flannel shirt and jeans. I was trying to be a butch lesbian. And I had the lesbian part down, but the butch I was not. But I, but I had the right haircut, and I had the costume. And the owners of the cafe, the reason I say that is that the owners of the, le of the cafe were lesbians. And so when a lesbian came in, they kind of cultivated that, hi, how are you? We're new, blah, blah, blah. So they came over. One of them came over and sat down. And we were talking for a while. And then she said, you know, I go to this meeting on Thursday night. That's tonight. And if you want to come, um, it would be great to have you there. 
Oh, yeah, what kind of meeting is that? She says, well, it's a program called Overeaters Anonymous. You know, and I have no idea why she said that. I didn't look very different from how I look now. Well, you'll see how I look now in a minute. Uh, these clothes have other clothes under them. Um, the only thing that she might have guessed at, and she probably didn't even know about it, was the chipmunk cheeks um, that regular ongoing bulimics have. Um, we look like we have strep throat or something. Ten minutes, I'd better hurry up. Um, anyway, I went. She didn't. That was, she never went back. But um, I was in OA for a year. I quit because my sponsor told me I had to give up peanut butter, and I told her I'd rather be fat. Um, and I came back on and off for years after that. I would get to the point where I'd look in the mirror, and I would be screaming at myself, I don't know what to do. If this can't stop, I'd rather die. I don't know what to do. Um, I had tried suicide a couple of times, but they were the call for help kind, not the really almost did it kind, and it never worked. Um, and I, so I'd come back here. And finally, I came back in 1993, and, it, and I stayed. Um, right before I came back, I had a hysterectomy, um, which is not relevant to this, but what was relevant was that I decided it was a good time to go on a fast. And I forgot that anorexic shouldn't go on fast. And I lost a lot of weight and I became anorexic again, and um, then bulimic again, and the whole thing was starting all over again. Only this time I had more information, and I knew I was probably going to die this time, or I was going to wish I could, and I wouldn't. So I came back, and again, thank God I did. Um, so I've been here ever since, and um, so shame about body. Okay, I guess I've been talking more about my food story than the shame about my body. I guess you got it that I was shamed about my body, right? <laughs> Um, I, was kind of per I was once sitting on the bus next to this guy who I didn't know, and some guy on the street looked into the window, yelled to the guy, hey, is that your girlfriend? If she's not, it's a good thing, because she's really ugly. This was on a public bus, and I was sitting there, like, mm-hmm, and I wanted to die. And this was in the eight, late 80s, so I'd already had some program, and I'd had some therapy, and I started working on my self-image and all of that. And I went home, went into the, went to the mirror, and something new happened. I looked in the mirror and I said, he's crazy. Um, I'm sure, in part, that was because I was coming here back and forth and back. Even though it was back and forth, it was sticking. I knew that I was better than anybody had ever told me or that I had ever told myself. So I looked in the mirror and I said, he's crazy. That was a minor miracle. Um, and then in 1993, I came back at some two meetings. Not every day, I came to meetings every day for a few years, and now I go to fewer than that. But I've even gotten to the, I got to the point where my weight has stabilized. And I know this is not only about weight um, and body, but the shell that carries me around, if it's not in order, the rest of me has, a, has had a bit, of, you know, has a bit of trouble hanging in there. So. I, my weight has been stable now for about eight, seven or eight years. That also is a miracle. It hadn't been stable for 30 years. Um, oh, and that's why I was going to tell you I have other clothes under here. I would never walk out of the house, no matter how hot it was, without this. And I have clothes under it that I wear now, out, actually out in the street. I started wearing them 
um, only in yoga class because in yoga you're not supposed to wear really big big clothes with lots of no skin showing. I got this is not original. I got this idea from somebody at a century meeting. But I now walk around outside like this. I don't have a flat stomach. My stomach pooches out when I'm not wearing tights. Um, I'm not afraid somebody's going to molest me or anything. Um, I actually didn't remember. I have to mention the sexual abuse again. And it's an outside issue, and it isn't an outside issue, because I think it has a lot to do with why my eating disorder was such a low bottom. Um, I didn't remember. I had made myself forget that, I, that anything had ever happened until about 1992, around the time I had the hysterectomy. So two traumatic events were going on at once. Hysterectomy, my major surgery, which is pretty traumatic, and then sexual abuse memories coming out of my ears like steam coming out of the teapot. Um, and I really, my recovery in, in this program took off because it really had to. Um, I was afraid to go outside for different reasons. I was under eating because I sometimes felt too nauseated to eat from just the memories. And over, and I felt so not normal that I almost felt like I didn't deserve to, to have friends, to be on the planet, to feel sexual. Any of those things I ignored my whole life that I now knew existed. Um, I sort of, oh, five minutes. Okay, let's wrap it up. Um, so by coming week after week, day after day, year after year for the past however many years that is, getting to know people in my home group, getting to know strangers who I now actually talk to at meetings, um, getting to know people well enough to call them friends at meetings. I've started, and hearing from a lot more people that they've had histories similar to mine, not just about the sexual abuse, but, but really low bottoms on either end, up or down, um, or have had a lot of shame. I've started to feel more normal. Now normal, you know, I mean, I call everybody out who's not in the program civilians, but I still feel like this program normalizes us to each other. It, it, it helps us cope with who we are, basically, which is really, if the program isn't about who I am and loving that and the divine light in me, I mean, I call God, I don't like the God word either, so I just call it it because I have no idea what it is. I know it's not for me, it's not a being or a who, it's a what, but I just don't know what it is, so I call it it, or divine light. But that, if I'm not here for that, then, then I don't know what I'm here for. To be who I am, to feel loved and loving myself and loving others from being who I am, whew, um, that's why I probably started to cry at the beginning, because. Because I owe having myself, having a sense of myself that can go beyond just the body, that can go out to you all, that can go into a spiritual life. Um, I owe all of that to you, to this program. Um, it's helped me be, as we say in Yiddish, a real mensch, but it's also helped me be a human being which is kind of what mensch means when we say it, but it's also just helped me be a being with spirituality, with a body that can walk outside like this and not worry about it, um, and with a person who, having become aware of all the losses I suffered in my life, and I suffered a great deal of losses, 
that I don't have to keep living that way anymore. I don't have to live a life of deprivation anymore. I can't get the past back, but I can start doing things that will start bringing me as close to what I want as I can get, and sometimes exactly what I want. Um, do I have any more minutes? Three. Okay, great. One of the things I did in recovery was, um, has nothing to do with my body size, but it has a lot to do with my recovery, um, was I had always wanted a dog. And I didn't have a dog when I was a kid uh, because, well, I had a dog for about five minutes, and my parents found out I was allergic, so they gave her away. Um, and then after that, I thought I couldn't have a dog because I was allergic, and I never questioned whether or not I grew out of that. And while I was in the program, with help from my program friends, I started taking steps to get a dog. I now have a dog. And the way that she helps me with recovery is that she loves meetings. She absolutely loves meetings. She sits under my chair or behind my chair. People at meetings love her, so now I have to talk to people in the room, even if I'm feeling too shy to do so. Um, and she reminds me to eat healthily because I have to feed her. And I have to feed her healthily or else she will get sick. And one day it occurred to me, if I feed my dog better than I feed myself, there's something wrong. Um, I've been abstinent for three years this month and from vomiting. And I've been abstinent from any major binging for... Um, my bottom line abstinence is no vomiting. And I say three years without vomiting for a bulimic of my chronicity and severity is a major miracle. And I'll, I'll end with that. This program works. Oh, I have 60 seconds? <laughs> um, let me think if you have anything to say in 60 seconds. Um, no, except that this, no, except this, feeling, this program is helping me get my feelings back. And that's a big part of life, and I didn't know that for a long time. Um, I thought thoughts were feelings, and I found out here that that's not the, they're not the same thing. Anyway, thank you. Thank you so much, Ruthie and Seema. Um, does somebody have the ask it basket that's pass it going around the room? If you could pass it forward. The speakers will now draw upon questions from the ask it basket for the remaining of this meeting. Um, and so what I'll do is I'll read the question and then I'll let you two decide who would like to answer, Ruth and, and uh, Seema, or both. Can somebody raise the pictures of, oh, they're in the back. They're coming forward. Thank you. Please be conscious of the time. We have about a half an hour, so if you could pass the pictures and make sure everyone gets a chance to see them. Um, first question from the basket. How important is self-care to body image? And part two, what do you do for self-care to enhance your body image? You know, for me, when I didn't care about myself and I thought I was awful, I didn't take care of myself. Um, and, and that was in, in all ways. I mean, I think I was always clean. And I was always concerned with 
kind of a little bit about what other people would think, but because I thought that's what it was about. Um, and I've had to learn to value my body in, in two different ways. One is that God gave it to me. It's the only one I got. I love my life now. And um, and I want to take care of it. And I want to, I've had some major medical challenges in the last 10 years, just huge ones. And it taught me that, one, I can't take my body for granted. And two, that I don't want to die. I really don't want to. I love my life. I, have, I want to have more time. And my husband has a life-threatening illness. And I worry about us both taking care of, of our bodies, so that, particularly in me, so I can be a caretaker and take care of him also. With respect to, um, to body image, it also has a lot for me to do with this dressing thing. When I was my when I was in college, I had hair down that I could sit on. This I was obese. I had hair I could sit on. It was also the 60s, so it was a little kind of like how it was. I had bangs down to here. I had jet black heavy hair. So there's about this much of me that showed. You know, I looked like I had a natural burka or something. And and I only and I only wore black, and I and I wore um, high heeled black boots. And and that and somehow I thought that made me invisible, I guess. And it was very very hard for me. And this is totally as a result of these the women in this room that I have. First of all, I have toenails that have polish on them. That's a, and it's blue. It's not red. That was a first. That was this week. I have blue shoes. I have a purple top. The women I'm talking about now. I have white pants. I mean, I'm 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 dressing it up. And I never did that. And it took a lot of acting as if. How important is self-care to the body image? And what do you do for self-care to enhance your body image? I wasn't always clean. When you wear ponchos in the summertime in New York, you sweat a lot. Um, and I once had a cousin who was taking me to visit his girlfriend across across uh, Lake Erie and to Canada, um, asked me if I ever bathed. Talk about shame. Uh, he was my favorite cousin before that. Um, and the truth was, I sweat a lot. You know, I sweated a lot. Um, so I take showers regularly, and I, I wash myself. That is, that is self-care. I take yoga. Um, I take yoga both for the physical aspect and because it calms me down and it connects me with the inner light that the yogas talk about, um, the spirit within us, and it helps reduce my stress. And stress is a, if I get too stressed, the food starts looking good, so i got to keep my stress down. Um, one thing I did for self-care was when I was 50 years old, I allowed myself to get tattoos, which is the age most people who had them in the 70s started removing them. So I have tattoo bracelets on my arms. I have a tattooed mouse and a flame. I'll show you. You can see it afterwards. It's too much. Um, I have tattoos here. And I got the tattoos because I wanted to acknowledge that my recovery. I wanted to acknowledge that I was starting to realize that my body was beautiful, even if I didn't always think so, that I didn't have the right, best of judgment about that. I think self-care is very, very important to body image. Because um, if we don't love ourselves and love our physical body, enough to take care of it, then what does that mean about 
the rest of the, the rest of our bodies, our emotional bodies and our spiritual bodies. We need all of them, and I think that they're not disconnected from one another. After losing your weight, what did or how do you live with the extra fluff of skin? What did you do with it? I'll let whoever wants to talk about their extra skin. <laughs> I let it hang there. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know whether, you know. I, I, I've actually thought at times about, um, I used to work out at a gym every day, and it was a gym where women, a lot of women, oh, probably about um, the late 90s, early 2000s, were getting liposuction. I mean, it was like the big thing, liposuction and new boobs. Um, and I didn't need new boobs. I just needed some tape to hold them together so they'd stay up. But um, but the, the liposuction was, was really an attractive Lure, um, and I'll tell you what stopped me. I've had enough surgery for the for other reasons to know that it hurts really bad, and that I am not very good at recovering. I hate being sick. I hate hurting, and um, I just, you know I just I just couldn't go there. It wasn't that important to me. Um, and I do wear bathing suits. I go on cruises and I go snorkeling and that kind of thing. And you know. That's just who I am. You know, it's just like, hopefully you look at my eyes and my smile and not look at the stuff that's hanging off here. Could you please elucidate the difference of how you feel in your body and how you see yourself having a connection with your higher power from working the steps? Well, that's a big, that's a very long question. That's good. Um, okay, could I could you please elucidate the difference of how you feel in your body and how you see yourself having a connection with your higher power? I have to say I'm not completely sure what the question means, but I'll try to answer it. Um, I worked the steps informally for a long time. I'm kind of a rebel in the program of kind of I don't like people to, to see that that's true necessarily but I kind of refused to work the steps normally like everybody else for a very long time and then it occurred to me maybe that's why I was having a lot of trouble um, and so I finally got a sponsor that I and I haven't fired her and I'm not going to um, I fired about six others before her um, and I'm working the steps and how do I feel um, how do I feel different the difference between how I feel and my... Oh, okay. Now I do understand what you mean. Um, I think it's a kind of parallel. I mean, I refused to be consciously in touch with my body as an experience, a living experience, for a long, long time. I just refused, just like I refused to work the steps. And I was going to get through life with just my mind as I was going to get through the program without doing the steps, you know, and um, had to make that into... A, a religion somehow myself. I did that for a long time. And what's happened since I've started working the steps, I struggled with higher power for a very, very, very long time. 
Um, and I'm still struggling with it, but I realized if I'm struggling with it, there must be something there, or else why would I be struggling? Um, my body has actually loosened up physically. Um, it hasn't changed my size. It hasn't made me be tall with long legs or anything, but I actually um, have lo loosened up a great deal. I feel more relaxed when I'm in, in meetings. I feel relaxed when I'm with my sponsor. It's almost like I'm feeling like there's enough room in my body for all the experiences that I need to have, and there's enough room in my body for the experience of a higher power and for connection with other people in the program. And I feel in a way that that connection between one person here and another person here, that space in between for me is also higher power because it's what keeps us here and it's what makes us sane. So I've been feeling better since I've been working the steps and I guess nobody is surprised but me. Um, and I hope that answers your question. Um, maybe you can speak to that too. Thank you so much for this meeting and your service. You're telling my story, and I'm 80 at home. Uh, today I read For Today, which said something about enjoying beauty and happiness as something to be grateful for, HP, allowing us to be in harmony with, etc., which I believe. But th where is the line, or how do we appreciate physical beauty, including our own, without getting obsessed and caught up? Thank you. Either of you have any comments? I mean, I guess for me, the getting um, caught up, I'll try to be short so we get to all the questions, but is is when it becomes an obsession where I start with the, you know, and it's, it's an obsession that's always got a judgment attached to it. It's never just an isness. It's never the look in the mirror and accurately describe. It's, it's like <clears throat> the what's okay, what's on, uh, okay, or on this scale of women that I admire, you know, where do I feel? And then I just, I think it's God. I mean, I really think it's God. God says to me, just stop. This is your craziness. This is the insanity of step two. This is lack of humility. This is somehow failing to recognize what your life is about which is about a spiritual center and service to others. And so I just kind of self-correct it, I think, after God reminds me that I'm just on the wrong path. What a waste of energy. And I know it's distorted. So it's a double waste of energy. Okay. Is there anybody here who's, a, who's not obsessed with anything except for food? No. Okay. I think that being obsessed, okay, my thing about physical beauty, I, I love physical beauty. I mean, who doesn't, right? And when I see something really beautiful, I want to own it. That's my obsession. So if I see, well, I have a beautiful dog and I do kind of own her, and, although I don't believe in that word, it really works. But when I see other beautiful dogs, I want them too. Or when I see a woman or man who's really physically attractive, I want to look like them. If they have a beautiful, belong, something that belongs to them, I want one just like it. 
Um, so it's an, it's an obsession, and it's that kind of obsessing that made me crazy and got me here. So in general, I just what I've started to do, and I have a teacher who's not in this pro- oh, actually she was in this program a long time ago, she's not anymore, but um, an art teacher who suggested that I think of it as as soon as I start to want somebody else's body, I've got to be that thin, and certainly as thin women still get catch my eye, then I should think about more about the process of appreciation rather than the need for ownership. In other words, it's really a wonderful thing to appreciate beauty. I mean, when I, I had the good fortune to go to Nepal a long time ago, and at 13,000 feet, I remember coming out of my tent in the middle of the night, and there's no, there's very, very little atmosphere between outer space and you when you're at 13,000 feet. And I looked up, and there were gazillion stars, and they were pulsing, and I couldn't stop crying for hours. It was so beautiful. And that was the first, that, looking back, that's the first time I, I can remember that I didn't think, oh, I want to have that. I should own that. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't stay in Nepal. I would have if I could have. But, you know, I just, it was so beautiful, and it moved me to tears. So now I try to focus on letting go, of, letting go of the obsession, doing whatever work I have to, and just reminding myself that I'm not going to have anybody else's body. I'm not going to have their dog, their partner, or whatever, no matter how much I want. And the obsession doesn't serve me. And that's really what the food's about, too. The obsession doesn't serve me, so I use the tools. And it's working sort of slowly, but it's working. Perfectionism rules my life. I am not so much concerned about what others think. I must be perfect. Have the perfect food plan, have the perfect life, etc. That's not possible. What's the alternative? You know, at one point I thought so poorly of myself, I would have never listed perfectionism as one of my character defects. Um, but the way I rec- when I recognized that I am a perfectionist, it was over procrastination. And I realized that the reason I wouldn't do things is I thought I had to do it 100% totally perfectly. So I wouldn't, I mean, it's like my fourth step. Like I had to have the right book, the right format, the right, I don't know how long, I said, how many different notebooks and pieces of paper and right color paper and right pen and right bag to hold it in and, you know, all this crazy stuff, you know, like somehow if I got all the right stuff, it would be the perfect fourth step. Um, now I can use a napkin and lipstick if it's necessary. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think perfectionism is, you know, what you do with it, and, I, and I'm beginning to sound like a broken record, but it's, it's the same thing. First of all, I can work the steps just on perfectionism. I am powerless over my perfectionism, and this is how it's making my, my life unmanageable. And look at what the insanity is and come to believe that God can take care and just work through all 12 on that issue. And then go back, for me, to six and say, and look at that entirely readiness piece. Because for me, that's so critical. And I've, you know, and that's more recent. I mean, it took me a long time to figure out that I wasn't always entirely ready when I said I was entirely ready. And then 
remember that that step seven says I'm not going to do it it's not what I'm going to do it's what God's going to do if I humbly ask him to remove my shortcoming and, and that's the only answer I have Ruth to move down here and start coming to my my home group. <laughs> I love I love hearing what you have to say, Ruth. Thank you. And I thought I didn't have anything to say about this actually until she was speaking. Um, I guess I was brought up by a perfectionist, the kind of perfectionist who really had to have things perfect. So I became the kind of perfectionist who wouldn't try to do anything because I knew it wasn't going to be perfect. Um, as a result of that, I really, as they say, kept my light under a peach basket for a long, long time and just never took a lot of risks. I mean, I took some risks. Everybody has to if they're going to leave the house in the morning. But um, I mostly underachieved. Um, I was a world-class underachiever. And the program has helped me see that there is um, a light, there's a spark of the divine in me. There's a spark of the divine in all of us. And that spark wants to connect with the other sparks. I didn't know that before, but I know I'm learning it now. That spark wants me to connect. And so I'm kind of throwing the peach basket off the end of a cliff more often and just I'm starting to take more risks. And it doesn't matter if I make mistakes anymore. Well, it matters. Okay. It still matters if I make mistakes, but I I use the steps and I use my program friends, I make calls, so that they will remind me that a mistake is just a mistake. So, that's it. We have a whole basket full of really great questions, so we may not get to all of them because we have to wrap up in about five minutes. What I'll do is I'm trying to group some of the similar questions together, and if your question doesn't get answered, please come up afterwards and talk to the speakers individually. I apologize for not getting to all these wonderful questions. Um, here's two that are similar. How do you get past the mean things people have said about your body size and learn to accept ourselves? How? The question, how do we get past mean things people have said about our body size and learn to accept ourselves? And similar question, I struggle with abstinence. I'm losing weight slowly. I still have over 100 pounds to lose. When strangers insult me and say things like, you're disgusting or lose some weight, bitch, it sticks with me for too long. How besides losing the weight can I deal with the shame of random insults? I mean, God, that's a powerful question, um, and I and I think it has to do. I mean, I, I, the body stuff is so charged, but it's just it's like how do we deal with either real and there are real or perceived negative comments about who we are, whether it's who we are in our bodies, how big we are, or how small we are, or how much we're eating. God, you sure can eat a lot. Or, um, and, and I think one of the concepts that was like totally I didn't get for probably a couple of years when I came, it's when the first person who said to me, 
What other people think about you is none of your business. And I just, I mean, because of course what other people thought about me was all of my business. I mean, if I wasn't, like, who the hell was, excuse my language, who, what was my definition? Who was I if I didn't get it from out there? And I think to me, that's the self-seeking that the big book talks about, is trying to seek an identity from the larger world when the identity needs to come from inside, from God. And I really, I used to give myself a lecture. What other people think about me is none of my business. I would write about it. I used to write an early recovery, man. I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote because I cried a lot and I was miserable a lot. But I filled up all that stuff with, you know, what God thinks about me and the people that I'm closest to. That's all I really care about. That's all I really care about. I, you know, I kind of care. I do care about, like, what you think. But more importantly, I know if I come to this convention and I stand here for an hour and a half or sit here in this room for an hour and a half, I'm not eating for this hour and a half. And that is a blessing because there was a time in my life that I never went an hour and a half without sticking something in my mouth. Does being thin make you anxious? How do you handle being beautiful or more beautiful? And on the same topic, another question. Three years ago, I was morbidly obese and then lost 120 pounds. Today, I'm normal-weighted, and some may even say I'm thin, but I don't see or believe it. Yet my self-body image seems to have been better before, when I was a size 22, than today with a size 4 or 6. I'm more obsessed today, more self-critical. Do you relate to this, and can you comment on this phenomenon or offer strength and hope and feedback? I can't deal, I, I can deal with the thin and anxious part. I've never been morbidly obese, um, and so I don't have that experience. But, um, see, does being thin make me anxious? Being a woman walking around in the world makes me anxious um, in a body. And um, now that I don't wear those big clothes and I'm more present in my body, um, I'm somewhat more anxious than I used to be. It's a difference in boundaries, and I don't really, you know, Ruth, I'm sure, will get up and talk about that from her perspective. Um, how do you handle being beautiful or more beautiful? Um, thank you, whoever wrote that question. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, the last few years, I have to say, I've gotten a lot of attention from people, not just men even, but just sometimes somebody saying, you know, something, I look really beautiful today. And I get really embarrassed about that because I used to feel so much shame about it and people used to tease me that sometimes I'm not really sure they're telling the truth. And then if they are telling the truth, then oh my God, I shouldn't feel glad about that because that's wrong. Um, how do I handle it? You know, uh, coming to meetings, I, for me, coming to meetings help, helps me and hearing other people's experience um, helps a lot. And even when I was really, really, really skinny, like I was at my 85 to 90 to 100 pounds, not, people didn't think I was beautiful except for modeling agencies and I was my face wasn't pretty enough, but 
but I looked really ill. And then when I started gaining weight, which for an anorexic or bulimic who's been anorexic before, it's terrifying, terrified me to gain any weight at all. Um, I'm not really, I'm, I'm not sure I can really answer this question to tell you the truth because I don't come from the place of being morbidly obese. But getting to a place where my body is, quote, a kind of normal size and having had the experience of that not being true before, um, I would say I still obsess about whether or not I could gain weight if I eat that thing off my food plan or that other thing. I still obsess, I'm still afraid of gaining weight, but um, that is lessening a lot. I Okay, I turn it over to my higher power, and I also turn it over to the meetings and talking to people. And I'm sorry I didn't answer that better, but I'm sure Ruth will have something good to say. Well, no, we are out of time. We're going to take one more question from the Ask It Basket and then wrap it up. Um, there are many questions that we didn't get to, so please, again, if your question wasn't answered and you would like to talk with Ruth or Seema, please come up to the podium after we close. through the questions, um, some of the questions, like somebody asked a question about um, giving up certain foods, and there's a, I believe there's a workshop on um, abstinence. So go to some of the other workshops, because I think some, especially the step ones, I think a lot of the questions that got asked will be answered in, those, in that step marathon. This one is really um, right on for, the, for this particular workshop, and I'm not sure I have an answer, but... The question is, do you feel you have a good idea of what you look like, or do I feel as if your my body image is distorted? And I think I said at the very beginning that I believe that my body image is distorted in the sense that I don't know how much space I take up. You know, so I, was t I told the story about the labyrinth and whether, whether I fit, and I told the story about looking at a jacket and thinking it would be too small, and it's like five sizes too large for me. So in that sense, I know I have a totally distorted image. But in another sense, I think I have a, I am developing a better sense of what I look like because I can tolerate looking in the mirror. First of all, I like having full-length mirrors in my house. We just, we, we're in the middle of a redo of our house. And in the hall, I want a, a long, skinny mirror in this one space in, in our hallway. So before I leave the house, I can get a, a full overview. And, and that's a real change. And it's okay. I have decided that it is okay to look in the mirror and say, you look okay. And, and you know, because I didn't ever do that. I didn't ever do that. So I think I have a fairly good, I think I look in the mirror and see someone who's younger you know, the first time somebody described, this was a couple of years ago, described me as having salt and pepper hair. I went home and I told my husband, this woman in the gym said I had salt and pepper hair. <laughs> and he said, well. <laughs> she has salt and pepper hair for the people listening on the recording. 
It's now time to close. Let's thank our speakers and all who have done service for the convention. Please stand, join hands as we close with the OA promise, I put my hand in yours.